pray, O Lord, that your presence would be found within it. We pray that you would use her and those alongside her to be great witnesses for Christ, to use the Scriptures well to discern what is true, and to soften the hearts of those in Japan, to hear the gospel and to hear it truly and well. We pray for conversion there as we've seen conversion in other oriental countries like South Korea. We pray, O Lord, that the gospel would burst forth triumphantly in Japan. We also pray, O Lord, for the lost in our own country. We think of the many, the millions, O Lord. We are such a large country. We have such a large presence as it relates to the gospel, yet we have such a large presence of rejection of Christ. And so we pray, O Lord, today for the lost. We pray for whether it be within our own state or nationwide, that you, O Lord, would soften the hearts of the American people. We pray that through this softening, O Lord, that you'd use your church to proclaim the gospel to those who are dying in their sin. And we pray, O Lord, that you'd raise up many from our own congregation, but throughout our country, to be witnesses and proclaimers of the gospel faithfully. We pray for our seminaries in the Reformed world. We pray that you would bless them even now, that you would hasten them to maintain their fidelity to the Scriptures. And we pray, O Lord, that as men come from these seminaries to enter pulpits, that you would use them, that you'd use them to bring Christ to the congregation but also to the towns and jurisdictions around them. We also pray, O Lord, for outreach within our own congregation. We pray, O Lord, that you would instill within each and every one of our hearts, hearts that love to discuss, to witness to you. We pray that you'd give us a zeal for the lost. We pray that 1% from our own congregation would, would, would desire global missions works. We pray that we would be a people that are known by our outreach. May we not be insulated to ourselves, but may we be a people that go out and go forth to bring Christ to those who do not know you. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd give us a greater zeal to this end. And we continue, O oh Lord, to lift up those who are absent from us. We think of the Austin Doris with Joanne as she heals, for Kaya as she continues to go through rehab. We pray that your spirit would condescend upon them now, that it would be gracious to them, that they would be healed well and they would be healed quickly. We long, O oh Lord, for them to be present before us. Be with Dan as he cares for his own wife. Give Him mercy and grace. And be with all of those, O oh Lord, who are downcast. As we experience the transitions of seasons, the dark, gloomy days, we long for the sun more. When we get a taste of it, we long for it even more. And so we pray, O oh Lord, in this season, in this melancholy season, that You would be with us. That You would instill within each, every, each and every one of us joy and grace and peace. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we could find happiness in You. Lord, we are reminded that as we gather together, we find the joy of Christ. And so even for those who are downcast, even here today, we pray that you send them your joy. Send us your joy. 
as we come to worship you. We offer, O oh Lord, all that we are in your holy name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're continuing our study there. As you turn there, we are reminded of um, Paul transitioning now to a new part of the book. He is in the body of the book, and in the body of the book, he begins to address the problems of the people. He seeks to correct the church in what it has found in its own errors and problems. These problems aren't as big as the church of Galatia, as you've read through that book before, or even Corinthians. This is generally a positive and hopeful book, but there are problems. Every church has problems. No church is perfect on this side of heaven, and the same is true for Philippi. And what we'll see is that though these problems seem small now, if they continue to fester, if they continue to grow, they'll become big problems. And so Paul admonishes the church by calling them to greater unity. They have had petty disagreements, and now he makes a formal call to all within the church to pursue unity through humility. Stand now for the reading of God's Word as found in Philippians chapter 2, picking up in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any confidence from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here ends our epistle lesson, and this is the Word of God. You may be seated. As far as I'm concerned, one of the best vacations, one of the only vacations that I consider a vacation is going to the beach. My family loves going to the beach. We are beach vacationers. And so once a year, we trek down to the beach. With our little ones, we rarely fly. It is not an enjoyable experience to go through TSA and the airports with our little boys. And certainly during the pandemic, it was not something that I would like to try masking those little ones for an entire flight. And so we drive. We drive every year down to the beach, to the Daytona area, and have a nice vacation with the family. We love the beach. But as we're traveling to the beach, there are all sorts of sights to gaze upon. There are all sorts of things to inquire and to gaze your eyes as you mindlessly travel down the highway. Sometimes we get caught in traffic as there's an accident. Other times you see some of the most unique places on earth. I remember one time hearing a story from a former pastor friend of talking about driving by a boutique that also specialized in prenups and legal advice. You see all sorts of interesting things as you drive on the highway across our country. But one thing that I'm reminded of and that comes to my mind whenever I think about driving to the beach is one sight that I will never forget. It wasn't the Cracker Barrel that we often stopped at 
and had our nice, delicious breakfast early in the morning. It wasn't a PCA church in the remotest parts of Florida. No, it was two Baptist churches. You see, it would be quite typical as you're driving down the road, you'd see First Baptist Church, the First Baptist Church. Nothing out of the ordinary there, just a normal, typical, southern First Baptist Church. But as I was driving down that road, just a mile away, I saw the same exact church again. Same build, same name, except it was the new First Baptist Church. Faced the same direction with the same parking lot. It had a striking resemblance. And I remember wondering to myself, what caused this? Who got the small piece of ham? Was it the music? Was it the carpets? What caused this church to split into? It was evident. This church used to be one church. But there's division somewhere. A division so intense that those who would leave the church would name the church the same name. They would take the name with them. Many things can destroy unity in the church. And Paul pinpoints in this passage one of the most common ways for unity to be destroyed in the church. And that is through selfish ambition and conceit. You see, First Presbyterian Church of Philippi is in the midst of a church fight. Uh, Iodia and Syntyche are two women who have let personal disagreements turn into bitter rivalries. These rivalries have welled up to the point that there is true deep division found within the church. These women were talented women. They were successful women. They were important and accomplished women. They were ambitious women, as Paul admonishes us here, full of conceit. And when those selfish ambitions of these two women in the midst of their disagreement continued to fester, it jeopardized their own work within the church. Division starting to well up from within. And Paul can see the writing on the wall. If this is unresolved, it will only get worse. The camps will solidify and there will be a church within a church. Two churches sharing the same Building. As I learn about our own congregation, as I've only been here a month or so, I, I see an affluent people. I see a people that are successful. I see a theologically precise people. I see a powerful people. And for us in the church, especially a Presbyterian church, selfish ambition is a grave temptation. It's a temptation in any church. But for the affluent, it is a great temptation. And selfish ambition can lead any church to ruin, can lead our church to ruin within a decade. And so Paul calls us to humble ourselves. He calls us to humility, the very antidote for the vile poison of selfish ambition. And so since selfish ambition destroys unity, pursue unity through humility. Pursue unity through humility. How do we do this? Paul gives us many examples within this text, but first we must lower ourselves. How do you pursue unity through humility? First, you must lower yourself. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant 
than yourselves. We see two very different approaches to the ministry of the church in this passage. That found within selfish ambition, conceit, and that found with humility. The first being selfish ambition. Let's just think through what is selfish ambition. In the Roman world, selfish ambition was a positive trait. It was not negative. It was good to be ambitious for your own gain. The Romans loved their prestige. They loved their ambition. They loved their status. And Philippi being a place where army officers would retire, these were citizens that were proud of their accomplishment. They are proud of the name that they've made for themselves. They were the pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of folk. They were ambitious people. They loved their country. They loved their city. And in that love, they would pursue anything for their own growth. They were self-promoters. Selfish ambition seeks to boost your own name in your own legacy. It's the narcissism within the church. I remember a seminary professor warning us about narcissism within the church. Narcissism usually seeks out power. Those who are narcissistic seek out authority. They seek out a voice. He said, be weary if you have a narcissist on your session. And he said that because they are really hard to get rid of. Really hard to get rid of a narcissist because they will stay and fight until they have extracted a pound of flesh from those who are under them. He used the example of the presidency and it was always striking to me. You must be a narcissist, at least in some capacity, to think that you're the most qualified human being in America to be the leader of it. You must be. Narcissists look for power. They're selfish in ambition. They pursue position. We must know, though, that not all ambition is bad. Only selfish ambition, only ambition that's, that views the self, that to glorify and gratify the self, to build the self's legacy for the self's sake, that is the bad ambition. There is good ambition. Ambition, when we, when we have zeal for the Lord, is a good ambition. If we were a church that had no ambition, no zeal, it would be problematic, it would be sad, it would be depressing as you'd come to worship God here. We have to have ambition, but what is our ambition grounded in is the question. Paul pushes us away from grounding that ambition in ourselves, in our own egos, in our own glory. And rightly, how do we do that? We must lower ourselves. When we are ambitious for the Lord, we lower ourselves. But ambition is not the only deadly poison in this cocktail. These women aren't merely ambitious. Quite interestingly, Paul also charges them with conceit. What is conceit? It is empty glory. It is self-glorification without no real basis in reality. It is the type of those who have all the confidence in the world and have no reason to have that confidence. As a new homeowner, I find myself with conceit quite often, empty glory. I begin a project in my house. I have 
just a little handiness within these hands. And as I pass the point of no return for the third time in a project, I begin to wonder to myself, should I have been confident in my abilities here? Four trips to Lowe's in one day tends to lead me to self-reflection. Self-confidence with no grounding in reality. That is conceit. It's empty glory. When you marry and wed together this selfish ambition with conceit then, you have someone who seeks their own glory, their own legacy, their own greatness, and having no reason or basis for it. They have no skill within it. When you mix these poison pills together, it is a deadly cocktail because it has no basis at least for someone who is self, selfishly ambitious, if they are good at what they do, there are some results. But even with these talented women, they, don't, they have gone outside of their own ability with what they demand. These are very poisonous pills for any church, and they can cause division quickly. We murmur to one another within the body, trying to find an audience or an ear. We sow division. We divide ourselves into various groups and camps. The ministry becomes me, myself, and I, my vision for the church instead of Christ's vision for the church. It's tempting for any pastor to fall into this category. You have a new pastor. What is he going to change? What is he going to do? What does he want? But it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. And that's where we find the remedy in humility. It's not our church. It's Christ's church. Humility, inversely, in the ancient Roman world was also viewed negatively. If the people loved to be pompous, if they loved selfish ambition, humility was the opposite. And it is a, 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 a theology, an idea, the idea of humility is something that bursts forth from the New Testament by flipping the idea and the culture on its head. Humility turns good. The typical picture of humility found throughout the Scripture is that of a lowly servant, one who didn't have much in way of their own self-worth. Someone who had to care for the needs of another before they cared for the needs of themselves. That's what humility draws. But in the church today, we find, and even perhaps in our culture in some capacity, we find humility to be positive. And so in order to get that Old Testament understanding, or even that New Testament understanding, I should say, we, we can expand the word to humiliation. What is humility but humiliation? In our catechisms, it says, how did Christ humiliate? How is he humiliated? And the answer is that he lowered himself. He took on human flesh. He took on the ails of the world around us. The great God of all the universe takes on human flesh, living with all the problems of humanity around him. The one who is due all glory and greatness uh, as God comes meekly, lowly, in a manger. The great example of humility is in Christ, and the apostles thereafter parry that to continue that work of humility 
within the church and world, to lowering ourselves. In order to have a unified church, we must lower ourselves. Augustine said this quite helpfully, for those who want to learn God's way, humility is the first, humility is the second, and humility is the third. If you want to know the ways of God, Augustine says, you must first learn humility. You must first learn to lower yourselves. So this is important for us because we are a prideful people. One of the chief sins that we often deal with when we get to the root of it, it is our own pride. We struggle to lower ourselves. We tend to think that we are too good for certain tasks, too good to set up chairs on Sunday morning, too good to clean up after a child in the nursery. We're too good for certain things. The remedy is the self-lowering as we think of Christ Himself. If Christ was willing to lower Himself by taking on human flesh, why can't we lower ourselves within the church? If you want unity in your congregation, you must learn to lower yourselves. You must learn to lower yourselves. And when it is hard, remember your Savior, the one who chiefly lowered himself to show you how to lower yourselves. Since selfish ambition destroys unity, we must pursue unity through humility. We must do that by lowering ourselves. But in verse 4, we see that we must also not only lower ourselves, that's not all that we must do, we must also look out for others. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. In the previous point, you might think that I was telling you to be full of self-abasement, to hate yourselves, to lower yourselves to the point of nothing. But Paul counteracts that over-lowering yourselves by saying in verse 4, first let's each look after our own interests. It's natural for humans to look after their own interests. It's natural for us to care for ourselves. And it's not a sin to care for yourself. It's good. You should care for yourself. You should keep yourself clean. You should keep yourself tidy. You should work. You should care for your family and those who are under you. You should care. But you should also care for others like you care for yourselves. This is getting into the second great commandment. On Wednesday, we had an interesting catechism on thou shall not steal. I won't go into the details. As Colin made me promise that I wouldn't. But part of that catechism answer is dealing with what do we need and what do we want? What does it mean to not steal? In America, we are so consumeristic that our wants become our needs, and that's what we discussed briefly. I, I need a new iPhone. I need a new car. I need a new home. I need a new TV. The command in the catechism calls us to frugality. Who in here lives frugally? I'm reminded of my wife's great family and heritage. They're very frugal in nature, and when I go to visit their home, it, it's a mirror for how I hope to run my home. Are they taken care of? Yes, they take care of themselves well, but they are not decadent. They are lowly. They are humble. Though they have a lot, they still don't they still choose to not waste a lot 
it's a good reminder for all of us and something I cherish from my wife's family. When I see them, they are not flashy. They take care of themselves well. And because of how they take care of themselves well, it leads to the second calling to also look out for the interests of others. See, if we consume ourselves with all of our wants and make all of our wants actual needs, we have little then to give to others. We have little time, resources for caring for others. But the, the command of Paul is to also look out for the interests of others. This is both physical, but it is also intellectual. It is to love our neighbors as ourselves well by looking out for our neighbors, making sure that everyone within our congregation is cared for and cared for well. But it also means, in regards to pushing back against selfish ambitions, giving one another an opportunity to speak. Instead of discounting one another's voice, offering others the privilege of listening to them, of hearing, having their interests as your own. Whether you are truly, deeply interested in such things is another question, but we are called to work towards caring about the interests of others. If you talk about something exciting, if I bring up something that you love, whether it be the blues or the cards, there's a fire in your eye. I don't have that fire in my eye for either of those teams. I don't care much for either. Maybe I'll learn as I, I stay here longer. But it is, it is good practice to still inquire and listen and to care even when you don't care yourself, looking out for the interests of others. But that includes then adding it to the context of the church, caring, listening, sitting with one another, even when you're in disagreement against them, counting their interests as your own. My, my favorite memory in the Christian church was when I was in high school, and my mom was coming to make a profession of faith in our Dutch Reformed Church, her and my sister came in. I, I was reared in a, a single, um, I, my mom was the only one to rear us, a single mother home, and so there were struggles in our home. Uh, my mom worked a job and a half, 40 hours plus a part-time job in order to keep our family system afloat, and that, that was still difficult. It is safe to say my mom did not have a lot of time on her hands. And when my mom did have time, she devoted it to us. And so she would work 60 hours a week, and anything else she would want to spend with us. Um, and so as my mom made profession of faith in this church, the pastor, Pastor Andy, my favorite pastor even to this day, uh, leaned in to my mom, uh, towards my mom, and asked her, uh, Lisa, is there anything we can do for you? You know, that sounds like a generic request. Is there anything we can do? You know, pastors might say this from time to time and mean nothing by it. Uh, but then he said to her uh, quite poignantly, uh, we know that you have a lot on your plate and you have little time for yourself. Is there anything we can do? Can we take the kids off your hands so you can have an evening, a weekend just for yourself so that you can take care of yourself? Can we find babysitters so that you can have an opportunity to rest, to refresh. You work 60 hours a week. You have no vacation time. You've been doing this for years. The mortgage payments seem di more difficult and more difficult. Is there anything we can do to support you? 
I don't know if Andy, Pastor Andy, was the most interested in single mothers and their difficulties. I don't know if he had that interest, but him and that group of elders gave my mother an opportunity to rest. They cared for her interests, even when at times her own family didn't care for her interests. They showed care for her interests. It's one of my favorite memories. My mom recounted this story to me and still does in tears for a church that cared for her interests. And that's what we are called. Do we care for one another like that? As elders in the church, I take that admonishment well that I haven't lived up to Andy's standard well. Is our faith merely bound to this one service every week? Or do we look to the people to our left and right and we, do we think about their concerns and their needs? Do we raise their interests to our own? Maybe not above our own, but to our own. Are we as interested in their well-being as our own well-being? When we are, it promotes a culture of unity. When we not only lower ourselves, but also raise others, it creates unity and destroys selfish ambition. You must lower yourself, we've learned. We must also look out for others. But lastly, I want you to note that we must also then share one mind. It seems quite odd. We are starting or we are ending at the beginning of the passage, but we see Paul's call in verse 1 and 2 where he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. You see, the culture that is argued within those first two points comes together by pursuing a one-mindedness within the church, not only cherishing one another's thoughts, but actually thinking one another's thoughts. A person of selfish ambition pursues only his own thoughts, pursues only his own desires, pursues only his own vision. But for those who are, who are pursuing to share one mind, they are concerned of maintaining that one-mindedness, setting aside their own ambitions so that the church might remain united. Have you ever been on different wavelengths as a church, different desires, different uh, wants, different hopes? It just naturally brews disunity. Like FM and AM radios, it's like being in a different book. We all desire to be on the same page, but we tend, when we pursue different mindedness, different books altogether. When we were at the DMV a couple weeks ago. I, I hate moving because of all of this kind of stuff, but I was at the DMV registering my vehicles, and I, I've loved my truck. And so all I was thinking about was my truck. But I decided I would kill two birds with one stone and perhaps save myself a headache. A terrible idea. Uh, going to the DMV with two vehicles. Uh, the, the nice clerk had to hate me by the end of it because he wanted to know about our SUV. He wanted to know all the details about our SUV so we could register it. But I just love my truck, and so I was just thinking about my truck. I was, just, I was describing the color of my truck, red. I, I, I gave him the VIN, mileage, told him about how I got the truck, not knowing he was talking about the SUV. And so by the time of it, he has all the paperwork before me, and I have to sign my, my life away for this registration. And I realized that I had been focusing on something completely different than him. We were on different wavelengths, and 
before me with a frustrated sigh, as you'd expect. He had to shred those papers and start over. Uh, I was incompetent at the DMV. I was in a different book, different wavelengths, and I'm sure that guy went home and told a story to his wife about this inflexible, new, dapperly dressed pastor that doesn't even know his own vehicles. The same can happen in the church. We can think that we're tracking well together. We can think that we're talking about the same thing, but sometimes we're just talking right past one another. We think we have the same hopes and aspirations, but really we mean something different by those hopes and aspirations. I remember in the, 20th, the early 21st century, late 20th century, the great wars over worship. Everybody wants the same thing in worship, but the debate was most hottest when it had to deal with contemporary or traditional worship. What kind of church will we be? Or in our own day, will we be a church that's focused on the ordinary means of grace, that is, the Word of God, prayer and sacraments, or will we be focused on programs? We all have the same goal. We want people to grow in faith. We talk about those goals, but we have different visions for how to achieve those goals. When we build our own church, what color will the walls be or the carpets? We all want a beautiful church, but we don't agree on what a beautiful church is. Competing visions. It's hard to maintain a unified one-mindedness. This isn't calling for uniformity within the church. You might think it is, but it isn't. That, that, that would mean that we would each go home and have our own churches because we are not a uniform people. I see diversity even in the midst of what might be united. But what unites us, as we're reminded in the Scripture, is what is the driving mission of our church. It's helpful when churches have statements like this, but... It's a cultural work. What draws us? What makes us Providence Presbyterian Church? How do we achieve one-mindedness? I believe verse 1, and I'll try to be quickly here, verse 1 uh, gives us all of the ingredients for one-mindedness, encouragement in the Christ, participation in the Spirit. In order for us to be united as one-mindedness, first we must be connected to Christ Himself. We must ha- remind ourselves of the same profession of faith that we have in Christ. What unifies us is that we are all sinners and we have been drawn together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians tells us by one baptism, uh, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father over all, who is over all and in all and through all. What unites our one-mindedness is our common profession. But notice also it's not just theological. In verse 2, we get the calling to be bound together in sympathy, love, and of one accord. It is relational. It is theological and relational. I wish I had more time to describe the love. You know it well. Pastors and Sunday school teachers teach it all the time, a self-sacrificial love. But being of one accord... That is where we must spend our time. What does it mean to be of one accord? The, Rome, the, the Greeks smashed words together and made compound words just like us. It is a compound word like cobweb, strawberry, or doughboy or something. It means to be with life or soul, to have the same heart. Uh, Aristotle used this phrase to talk about marriage, the one-heartedness, the unifying nature of marriage. It's when a team acts like a team instead of as their own individual person. Teams do well when they are united as one. 
uh, when you think of the NFL, they would say that the the diversity in regards to talent is really not that large. It's maybe 1% or 2% throughout the whole league. And it's about the team and those who lead the team that lead to Super Bowl victories. That's why Bill Belichick and uh, Tom Brady could have so many uh, terrible Super Bowl wins is because they had a good team. They were united well. They were led well. They were one-souled. On the field, they were one team. You compare that then as I will often do, to the Bears, who has, has the first round, first pick this year that they just traded away. It's the opposite effect. Not good leadership. They were 12 or 11-minded on the field. They weren't of one accord. They weren't one. The old man in me looks out for my own interests over the interests of others, but we must remember that in order to pursue unity within the church, we must pursue one-mindedness. We must pursue a mind that draws us together. We must give others the benefit of the doubt. We must remember that when we have discord within our own body, one of or all of these three things must be implemented quickly. Are we lowering ourselves? Are we looking out for others? Are we seeking to pursue a shared mindedness? Because when we do those things, that selfish ambition, that division within our body will be mended by unity itself. May there never be a new Providence Presbyterian Church of Troy. I would hate in 10 years or in my time here to see a new Providence Pres where someone down the street as they're going to the beach will say to themselves, how did that happen? They must have built that building at the wrong angle with the wrong type of chair or pew. They must have forgot to put a fellowship hall in it and made the sanctuary. They must have not had a big enough study for their pastor. Must have not had enough Sunday school rooms for the children. What caused their church to split? So much so that they would name a new church the same. May we never be that church. May we pursue unity through humility, as Christ teaches us in the Scriptures. Remember the words of Augustine. For those who would learn God's way, humility is the first, the second, and the third. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You. We are often a prideful people, but we are reminded in Your Scripture, by Your Son, that to lower ourselves we would be exalted in Your sight. And we pray for that truth to be found within our body. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.